Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Greg Vendian, as I am each Friday when we put new conversations with fascinating musicians out onto the airwaves. And I'm very happy to announce that we are now up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you want to just listen to the audio and not look at our beautiful faces smiling at you while we talk about musical concepts. But you can always see us here on the YouTube and uh, you can can watch us have a good time talking about music history and some of the stuff that drives the artists that we're talking with who are trying to do something new. We're trying to be uh, engaged with forward-looking music endeavors and that's certainly the case with my guest today. You know him from his work with the Aristocrats, with Guthrie Govan and Marco Miniman, as well as his uh, work with Joe Satriani, Steve Vai. He is the bass player in my favorite animated metal group, Death Clock. Of the many. <laughs> and of course, a longtime collaborator, uh, as I am, uh, with the great Mike Keneally. So uh, I'm just really thrilled to have him here today to chat about his new album and all kinds of cool stuff. This is Brian Beller. Hi, Brian. Hey, there's my hand. I can do it like that. Ooh, if you move around in the background, it's all funny. Yeah. I, I like how impermanent oh, your physical form is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate it. And, yeah, I appreciate uh, you taking the time, buddy. Um, you know, there's, uh, besides Mike Keneally, uh, we have in common that we are both Jersey boys. Originally. Right. What town are you from originally? I'm from Teaneck. So I'm like North Bergen County and you're from Westfield? I'm from Westfield, yeah. Heart of Union County. Yes, I know it well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it, it was a, a very informative and intense place to grow up and I... Uh, it's great to go back there and see my family who's all there still. My, 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 uh, my brother's gone over to the other side. He lives in Philadelphia, outside Philadelphia. But uh, my parents still live in Springfield. My sister still lives in Westfield. So I go back there and see them. It's great. Uh, but uh, I moved to a different place, as you can see. Yeah. <laughs> this, is a, th th this backdrop is actually a picture that I took that ended up on the cover of my uh, that, the Double Concept solo album that I put out last year called Scenes from the Flood. And it's in a, a rural part of California. It's basically kind of uh, north, north of Los Angeles proper. Still in Los Angeles County, but it's uh, it's northwest of the city, and it's a, it's it's a pretty beautiful place. You know, it's it's nice for musicians to be able to get away from it all. I think. Well, if you're touring, if you're mostly touring, then uh, it turns into a thing where uh, you know. If you're a certain kind of personality and, and all that energy just kind of drains you, then you just want a place where you can go back and and just kind of like have everything be really quiet and still. Because when you're on tour, you're just going from airport to airport, city to city, city center to city center, population to population center, concrete, concrete, concrete. You know, you got to go where the people are because that's what makes the show work. So you're, it's the opposite of getting out into nature and getting into quiet spaces and, and all the rest of that stuff. So. I just felt like it was, uh, it was, and I've always been fascinated with rural areas. And anyway, even when I was in New Jersey, funny thing, I used to like go up to the Watchtower Reservation and just hang out there because it was the 
most rural place I could find within a bicycle's you know distance. So uh, when I got out to California and I realized that there were so many sparsely populated areas that were fairly close to the actual city, which is a that's a that's primarily a Western phenomenon, I think. You know, the, the suburban sprawl in the Northeast kind of never really ends. You, know, you just go from town to town to town to town. Out here, you go far enough, there's just not anything there. Mm. So uh, I like being on the edge of that. And, uh, and that's, that's where I live, and that's where I've called home for a while. Fantastic. I, I, I feel like I need that quiet and that peace and quiet and, and the green and to be around nature and find it really conducive to creating. And I think to, in order to create, you have to be very relaxed. I'm not very good at creating when I'm all hyped up, so. Yeah, and you know, some people, it's the opposite. They really want to be in a city. You know, they just, they thrive on that energy, the, the, the constant neutrons and electrons banging against things. Really, you see me like ne negotiating my arms around here trying to get the background to be here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I couldn't do that. And you know, it's funny because I grew up in New Jersey and to me, New York City, that's a city. You know, it's like you go to the city, it should look like this. I remember when I went to other cities for the first time, I was like, where's the city? These couple blocks, that's it. You know, not to be a snob, but it was just my reference point was just Manhattan. So, uh, very important. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's quite a buzz that we're always going back to Manhattan, but like, you know, after a day, I'm just like, oh, God, I gotta get out of here. Now, did, did New York play a part in your musicality coming up the way it did for me? Because I know that being close to New York, and I'm really about 20 minutes from New York, uh, I, I found that I could take lessons, I could go to shows, I could go to clubs, I could do so many things in, in the 70s and, and into the 80s. Was it, did you have a similar experience? No, it really didn't play much of a part at all. Uh, I was a, you know, I'm the bedroom guy mostly. Uh, I played in the band that was based in Persephone uh, with some guys there who, uh, and there was a scene there. There were some guys that went on and, and, and did some stuff there, but in Westfield, it was, it was pretty barren. And it was very, you know, like cool kids were listening to like REM and uh, Smiths and like, stuff like that. You know, not there's not cool stuff in there, but like, you know, when you're growing up and you're a muso and you're into prog and stuff like that, like there's nothing there for you. So uh, I just stayed in my bedroom and I learned as much music as I could off the records. I would go into New York City and I would go to 8th Street. I'd go to It's Only Rock and Roll and Revolver, get the Led Zeppelin, one of the Pink Floyd bootlegs. And then when Metallica started to become a thing, I did that too. Uh, but I, I, I never went to New York City to see shows, you know, I mean like in clubs and stuff like that. I only went and saw big shows. Like I saw Pink Floyd on the Momentary Lapse of Reason Tour 86, the first tour without Roger Waters in Madison Square Garden. That was pretty amazing. Uh, and I saw uh, Metallica at the Felt Forum in 1986 in the Master of Puppets tour. That was, that was a great show. I'm glad I saw that. And there were a couple others, but I never got into the club scene. I just, I just, it just you know, I wasn't, maybe I was, wasn't hip enough. Uh, my one claim to fame in the New York City clubs is that uh, it was in, uh, I think it was uh, 1990. I came back from a summer after I started going to Britain College of Music and I went just to, I was walking around the, the city with a friend of mine uh, she was like, let's go see some live music. So we just walked into Mondo Kane just because on just, we didn't know who was playing there. And we walked in and there was this band and they were super funky and really good. The singer was killing and like the guitarist like had all these great rhythms and riffs and the tone was amazing. The 
bass player was grooving, slapped his ass off. And it just was like, you know, song after song, and they, they could open up and play jams. And there were like three people watching them, like us and like one other person. I, you know, after a gig, I was like, it's like, do you have anything? And I bought their cassette. The name of the band was The Spin Doctors. <laughs> there you go. It was, it was, I swear to God, it was less than a year later or something that, that video was on MTV. That's interesting. Other than that, not much. And then I ended up going to Berkeley at a college of music in Boston. And that's where my, my you know, my, my musical uh, world really, really started. And well, everything what, I got, I got out of Berkeley. And then I moved to L.A. four years later. I'm kind of curious about teenage Brian Beller, though. Like, you, What music are you getting into as a young man, discovering that you want to do music? And what's inspiring you? What's exciting you at that point? Uh, the big bands for me when I was in high school were Pink Floyd, for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of The Wall, a lot of Animals, a lot of Wish You Were Here. Dark Side, of course, but I got into the other big three more. Uh, yes, a huge fan for me. Just Chris Squire? Oh, yeah, but it'd be not really even because of Chris Squire, just because of the compositions. That was what it was about for me, was these grandiose compositions, like Close to the Edge and Siberian True, and I mean... I was in a Tales of Topographic Oceans. I was listening to Relayer when I was in high school. Uh, you know, I had the Yes album. I love that too. Uh, yes is a huge band for me, compositionally. And uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, just everything about groove and rock and power, you know, it was Led Zeppelin. And then uh, then I had a metal thing where I was into the big four, you know, a little less so Anthrax, but Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, Rain and Blood. It was a big thing when that came out in 86. Uh, so it was the metal bands and Black Sabbath, of course, uh, but then the big prog bands. So I was much more of a Yes and Pink Floyd guy than I was, say, a Genesis and Jethro Tull guy or General Giant guy. And I think that has to do with the idea that I've always been a little bit more enamored with the compositional aspect than just the uh, complexity for complexity's sake thing. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't... It really explained why I ended up getting into Frank Zappa when I got to Berkeley, because there is some complexity for complexity's sake in Zappa's thing, for sure. Uh, but that's what uh, high school Brian Bellard was doing. So were you playing any progressive music in high school? Well, only in my bedroom. You know, there wasn't anybody that I could play this stuff with. There, were, there, there was nobody in town. And you know, in New Jersey, you know, you go two towns over, you might as well be in another state, especially when you're growing up. Yeah. So... Westfield was not happening uh, for this kind of thing. So I really just I really just played in the bedroom. And I finally found those kids in Parsippany, Dan and Mike Fadel is the name of these kids. And then, you know, the Tishy brothers came from there. Brian Tishy is a famous drummer now. He was from Mars Plains, I think. And uh, his brother, Mike, was a really good guitarist. And uh, there's another guitarist named John Skivick, who's from Convent Station, you know, which is right near there. And uh, uh, he went on to play with the Eels and the Wallflowers. We played a lot together at Berkeley. But I didn't have really anybody that I could just sit around and like rush songs with. So I just, I just, I just, I, I hid my bedroom until I got to Berkeley. So what happened to Berkeley? Well, you know, I, I got to Berkeley and I was like, oh my God, everybody's great here. I mean, not everybody, but I mean, like a lot, a lot of people were a lot better than I was. And that wasn't the experience that I was having in Westfield, New Jersey. So I just got really scared. And uh, I, then I went, I, I really got into serious practicing. So I was kind of a lazy practicer when I was in high school. I would learn stuff by ear just enough. 
you know, to get the technique together to do it. Once I got to Berkeley, I was like, wow, this is the real deal. So I went and I really kind of hid in the shed for about a year, year and a half. And then I came out, and, you know, I could slap and I could play stuff. You know, I was never the most technically advanced player, but I could play songs. And uh, I started putting together my own shows at Berkeley. And, uh, and, and it was really, it was, I wasn't really about uh, trying to be the, the chopsiest player, but I, I wanted to have like, I wanted to show off a little bit because you do that when you're a teenager and when you're early twenties as a musician. But I wanted to be a part of like a big funk rock band, you know, with horns and background vocals. So I, I formed this thing, I, I called it Cosmic Chicken. And uh, we had like you know varying lineups, anywhere from like ten to twenty pieces. You know, the big the biggest band we had was like six horns, four backing vocals, two guitars, two keyboards, guitar, uh, percussion, drums, bass. You know, a couple lead vocalists. It was crazy. And we would do like the modern stuff. We would do would be like Fishbone and Chili Peppers, uh, and, uh, and but then we would also go back and do Stevie Wonder and uh, and stuff from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and. It was just kind of it was just kind of all over the place. Uh, the whole point was to put on a big presentation and to get people to come see the show, right? That's what it's it's uh, that's what it's always about. That's what it's always been about. And uh, and that was one of the things that I learned when I was at Berkeley, which is you can hide in your bedroom all you want and be really good, but at some point you got to go out and play, and at some point you got to let people know that you're playing. You got to get them to come to the show. Uh, and so that was something that I. I paid, I didn't realize I was paying close attention to, but I was paying close attention to while I was there because I wasn't the kind of player that people were just plucking out of, uh, you know, a lineup and saying, I want you on my thing. There were a couple other bass players in my class who were, who were flashier and, you know, more advanced technique. And, and that was a big thing then, especially in the late eighties, and early nineties. So I kind of had to make my own party and, uh, and it was very instructive to do that see what worked and see what didn't i know exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah you had you had you got to make it happen you know and uh sitting around definitely doesn't make it happen but going out and playing music and playing for people and putting your vibration out there that's definitely a big thing and um and you ran into some some important collaborators right around that time didn't you yeah the most important one really was uh joe travers a lot of people in his Apple world, of course, already know now. He is the Vaultmeister. He's the guy who's really, really the foremost authority on Frank Zappa's music and legacy in the world, living today. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, aside from Dweezil and Ahmed, we've seen stuff that only they would see. Joe Travers is really the guy. And it's funny because he was really devoted to that from the second that I met him. I've never met somebody who was so singularly devoted to something, you know, and he was 19, 20 and he was a drummer. He, and, and, you know, he could do the double kick, play shreddy things, but he really, really wanted to play Frank Zappa's music. He really wanted to be in Frank Zappa's band. And of course the 1988 band had just finished touring. And there I was in 1989 and 90 and, and 91 and, and, and running into him. And he's the one who really kind of taught me about Frank Zappa's music. And so then he went to LA before I did got the gig with Weasel Zappa because Frank was already sick by then. And then uh, when there was an opening, uh, he got me an audition in Weasel's band. And then I got the gig and then I moved to LA. And suddenly I was one of those Zappa guys, even though I never played with Frank, 
and I would never claim to be on the level of those people, just being associated with the Zappa name at all just kind of changes your life. And so suddenly it was like, who's this guy? And, uh, and, and the weird thing about it is that it was the Zappa thing is kind of associated with people who are really advanced technical players. And so here I am, you know, I used to really love, you know, my, my thing is to play like rootsy R&B stuff and straight up rock, you know, Zeppelin, like the Stevie Wonder bass lines and Tower of Power and, and you know, Pink Floyd stuff, just really rootsy kind of stuff. Yes, can be kind of rootsy in R&B if you listen closely enough in certain things. Uh, but uh, this really high flying technical stuff that I was being thrown into, suddenly I was like, I had to kind of like go run back into the shed all over again because now I was being expected to perform at an even higher technical level and I could kind of just reach it. Uh, so that was how it all started. And then ever since I've been the guy who, who plays with fancy guitarists, that wasn't the plan, but you know, man, man plans and God laughs, right? Sure. In fact, um, I don't know how much people realize that we need bass players like Brian Beller because, you know, um, flashy bass players, I guess, you know, I, I kind of also had my fill of that. And I'm, you know, over the years become more interested in musical bass players, I guess what I call functional bass players. Well, I appreciate that. And I certainly don't want to sound like I'm slamming anybody because the thing about extended technique, especially on bass, is that if you can do it really, really well, it's just like the rarest of birds, right? I mean, you know, Victor Wooten is incredible. Nobody does what he does. And nobody really did it, you know, I mean, you can trace lineage, but nobody really did like he did it until he did it. Billy Sheehan, I mean, God, you know, the three finger thing and, and the amount of velocity and ferocity that he was bringing this stuff from a really early era, you know, I mean, early eighties, he was just going crazy on the instrument. So the thing is, uh, and this is kind of a funny thing. So in the fusion, the jazz fusion world, what I find just in terms of basis is that if you want to get into extended technique, you, there's a lot of people who've done it. You know, I mean, people, you know, I mean, just look at John Patitucci, the guys who played with Chick Corea and Stanley Clark. And I mean, you know, that, and that's just the beginning. Marcus Miller. And, and, and now you get more modern guys like Hadrian Parade, who plays with John Lachlan and, uh, and Matt Garrison. And, I mean, and then you can go back further. Gary Willis has that. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. But it seems that the strange thing about bass is it seems that if you go to a certain uh, point on your instrument and you want to kind of go to the ultimate level, you just kind of end up being a jazz guy. And, and it's not like that on guitar. And it's not like that on drums either. Like there's some like, you know, people who have like these really, really insane reps and it's really, they're just kind of rock and, and, and pop guys. But like the bass, it's like, you're gonna be the ultimate bass player. Like you gotta be able to like play all the Charlie Parker solos on bass. And it's like, I don't wanna do that. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I was never inspired to do that. I was at Berkeley and there was a point where I could see where they was going into jazz. I just wasn't inspired. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I think that there are very few extended technique players in rock and that are really rock players. There just aren't that many of them. Oh, that's interesting, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, you get like Billy Sheehan is kind of the North Star, you know, but you know, so who else are we talking? Like, you know, Dave LaRue. I mean, like Dave LaRue can play jazz, even though he's known for playing kind of like the, the Dixie Dregs and Steve Morris and the Southern Rock Fusion thing. Uh, 
you know, you get into guys like Robert Trujillo, who's got a lot of chops. You know, he can slap and play and do a lot of different things. But I mean, like the, the list of guys that are quote unquote rock players who are just, you know, this, oh my God, he can do anything, are total shredders. It's, I think it's actually quite short. Whereas the list of guys who, you know, on the funk fusion uh, jazz side, I mean, that list is really long. So, uh, and it's, I think that's kind of interesting because when you're playing rock bass, it kind of goes back to the, I'm telling, I'm answering your very short statement and a long statement, which is that there's really only so much you can do in the backbeat idiom of rock, even in prog rock, even adventurous rock, be on bass before it just starts to become overbearing. And, uh, and I even keep that in mind when I'm playing with the aristocrats. And the whole point of the aristocrats is to be over the top and kind of take the piss out of everything in a Zappa kind of musicality way, maybe play a little too much sometimes. But that's a trio. Like, I noticed the difference between the aristocrats and Joe Satriani. Just adding that second guitarist or keyboard, and of course, Joe Satriani's compositions are, are, are much more kind of middle of the road than the aristocrats stuff. But even if they weren't, just from a sonic standpoint, with the fourth member of the band on bass, you just don't want to do as much. You shouldn't anyway. That's the way I feel about it. Well, it's like Frank Frank would say there, you know, the issue becomes statistical density. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and of course, yeah, the trio it encourages everyone to, to be more orchestral and play more. And once you add a fourth or a fifth person, or if there's a singer, you know, at the end of the day, there's like a critical mass and and you're talking about music. You're not talking about how do I feature my technique? How do I feature me? And I think that's what I appreciate is that it's always about the music with you. In, in Keneally's stuff, it's always been about the music. And, you know, let's face it, we, we have both had to learn Keneally tunes that were really challenging, but they're not impossible. And, and in a way, they're not even like super technical, but that's they are- magic. Yeah. That's the magic of the Keneally gig, is that you can explore advanced musicality without having to, you know, be able to play 16 points and 200 beats per minute, because he's just generally not writing stuff like that. Uh, and you know, yeah, and you know that. And so it really kind of becomes more of a mental exercise. How can I bring songsmithing, you know, which is such a big part of bass playing and drumming, of course, you know, rhythm sections, you know, transition, you know, going from A to B, whatever the A and B are. A, B, C, D even, uh, bringing those to life so that the transitions mean something, so that the song feels like it's telling a story, you feel like you've taken a journey and maybe come back to somewhere that you started, uh, even if you took a roundabout way, many of Keneally's songs do that, and, uh, and to be able to bring really basic elements of songsmithing into a kind of a complex harmonic and rhythmic universe uh, that he devises. And, and, and you have to think simply, even though you're in a complex context. Yeah, you have to be focused. So, yeah, Keneally's great for that. And, uh, and Joe Satriani's great for that, too. You, know, you really, if you're going to play a film, you better make it count. You know, in the middle of a song like Flying in a Blue Dream. Just any of his. There's so many classic songs that he has that are just melodies and a groove, and and that's just it. You know, Joe Joe Satriani said something to me once I thought was really profound. He said, "I don't think it's a song unless I can play the melody on a piano." 
And I think that that's really like a big chunk of wisdom for guitarists in particular. Because guitar is a funny instrument. You can, you know, do like kind of little bends and slides and, and all sorts of things. But in the end, what are the notes? Like, what are they? You know? And I, I got what he was saying. It's like, if it can't be reduced to the actual, here's a note, here's a note, here's a note, here's a note, for this duration, for that duration, for that duration, then it's not, yeah, it's not really a melody. It's kind of something else. And, uh, and, and, and that's just one approach. It's not the only approach. I mean, you know, listen to a band like Animals as Leaders and like, you know, just the very first song on the very first album, like, was that, is that Tempting Time? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you start listening to it and that, uh, I mean, you're, you're thinking, oh, wow, it starts with a solo. And then you realize he does it again. And you're like, holy shit, that's the melody. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, it's funny. You, you, you jump on that part. The thing that impressed me when I first heard that was, you know, and, and so they've got this cross rhythmic thing. And it grooves like a motherfucker. So you're like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you got that sort of post uh, non-brood condiment from Holdsworth where, you know, oh, is that he's starting with a solo? Oh, no, that's the melody because he's going to yeah. play it again. And so, yeah, but it's an incredible thrill. And Tosin's so great. And, and you know, those compositions are really cool. Um, I remember meeting him when they first came around and he was really into Meshuggah. And I found yeah. that interesting. Well... You know, there's there's metal before Meshuggah and there's metal after, and and there's just no getting around that. I mean, I remember, I remember I one of uh, one of my great friends, Mike Mesker, who does the artwork for a lot of the Steve Vai and Frank Zappa uh, projects. Incredible graphic designer. He's the one who turned me on Animals as leader. He's like, listen to this. This is the next thing. And that was like 2005, 2006. It never occurred to me, listening to them, that they would become kind of the most influential metal muso band of the last 15 years. And I think in a lot of ways they have been. Well, so many modern bands, the younger bands like Covet and Chon and uh, uh, Periphery and, uh, not Periphery, and Polyphia. Just there's so many uh, of these younger acts out there who are who have taken that kind of like, just the clean part of their arpeggios, the melodies, Pliny has taken a lot from them. Uh, and and kind of turn it into a, a, a style all its own, which is great. But I remember in 1995 or six when, do you know Rich Pike? I do, yeah. Rich Pike, we're over his place. And uh, he's a, he used to work for, for Steve I. And he had an early, early uh, internet radio show. Uh, and it was called Nun Radio. And, and he's like, you have to listen to this. I'm like, I was in the metal. I like, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and all the big four, the thrash metal bands and Pantera and everything. And he just put on Future Breed Machine. And I just remember being like, what is this? Like, well, I, I love I, that. I, I just, I, the whole time I was just like, you know, on like, like on edge. That just, the, you know, the... And the thing is, now it's... It doesn't even sound dated at all now. You go back and listen to it, and you're just like, that is completely fierce, and it's 25 years ago. Uh, I ended up, uh, actually, I used to write for Bass Player Magazine, and uh, I, I interviewed Peter Norton, who was the original bass player from Meshuggah, 
and uh, and he's the one who played the track. And he told me how they did it. He said they, they he said it was like a very cerebral thing that they 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 had long meetings about like the concept of the band and the concept of these songs and how it would work. And they just started playing. They they wrote some riffs, and he said they would just start playing them really slow, like you know. They would be like I think the the main riff in that song is like one two three four right and he said they would rehearse it like one two like a long time and then we know that well yeah right we when when you can feel it slow you can feel it fast and you can't go, you know, you, you say, oh, I can't play it slow. I can only play it fast. It's like, fuck that. Oh yeah. You got to sit in it. If you can't sit in it slow, you're not going to sit in it fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. And so, you know, it's just That's something I wanted to talk about was your relationship with all the bass players when you were doing those really important interviews, because you covered so much ground and so you, you were able to to get really at the foundation of a lot of bands that way, no? It was really great. I mean, like, you know, I, I wrote for Bass Player Magazine at first as kind of a lark. Like, I, I used to have this blog called The Life of Brian, and I would just write, you know, long, snarky shit. And, and they were like, do that for us. Mm-hmm. I'm like, sure. Back page? They're like, yeah, sure. I'm like, yes. And so I did that. Like, I have 18 columns that were just totally free form, you know, on whatever the hell I felt like writing about. I'm sure I would have got something out of the way that the Zoom background is behaving right now. It would have been at least 800 words. Uh, but, uh, and, and I did that and I felt like that after a year and a half or, or more, like two years really, I kind of exhausted that format. And then I took a break and then, cause I was working for an amplifier company, it was a bit of a conflict of interest. And then once I quit that, I went back to writing for them and I started doing feature interviews and transcriptions and interviews with the people who did the, you know, the original line. And, it was such an educational experience. I mean, I mean, a couple of the standouts were like Jonas Helborg. That was a really deep interview. Uh, I, I remember interviewing Chris Wilsonholm from Muse. You know, uh, that was a cover story. And uh, I was a big fan of what he was up to, creating so much sonic space, filling out that trio just massively. Uh, Justin Chancellor from Tool, that was a good one. Uh, uh, Alex Webster from Cannibal Corpse. That guy's got a lot going on. You know, not everybody knows that. Uh, and... Uh, Oh God, there are just so many. I mean, I, I, I interviewed like, you know, I'm Patatucci and I, I did Billy Sheehan and, uh, you know, I did talk to Victor a little bit, but I never did a big thing on Victor, but I did a little thing on him. Uh, I mean, I, I just, so many players, I learned so much and I had to sit there and play it, even though sometimes I couldn't really play this stuff. I did Arthur Barrow once. We did the, you know, the St. Alfonso's melody as the, as, the, as the monthly transcription. I could never play that thing up to tempo, you know? I, I could play it. I remember I had it at about, 65 70 percent like i mean not even close it was such a bitch but you know that's the thing is i wanted to be able to get and i wanted to feel my hands to be able to get inside what they were doing right and then once i could understand what it was that they were doing on the instrument i could explain it to the reader and be like yeah this is cool this is cool this jump is weird you know you have to watch your right hand over here you know your left hand you got two options both of them are bad you know to try and get around this thing blah 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 you know, uh, and it wasn't always technical. Sometimes it was just groove. Uh, but uh, 
was a lot of really, really fun stuff. And, and I definitely am a more well-rounded bass player musician for having had the opportunity to do that. Well, and they were lucky to have you because when it's co colleague to colleague, it's different than when it's, you know, journalist to, to artist. And yeah. they must have felt very comfortable speaking with you and, and, uh, and got a lot out of it. Oh, I'll tell you one that was super interesting, but also kind of challenging was Edgar Meyer. Have you ever talked to him? No, but I admire his work greatly. He's an absolute genius. I mean, like he won the MacArthur Grant, come on, you know? Uh, but uh, he's a very intense guy. And I was, you know, at, at his uh, house uh, and I saw his, his home studio. And it, was, it was just really intense, really intense. How? <laughs> oh, just, not, you know, some people, you know, uh, are kind of easygoing in nature and they like, you know, and it helps the flow of an interview, but he was, he just, he was into kind of challenging the premise of questions, you know, which was just like, like, listen, you know, you, have you ever considered that the way that you're thinking about this is all kind of, you're just missing this big thing. And it was kind of like that over and over and over again. And, uh, and you know, a lot of the times I think that's where genius comes from. But I was just a kid, so I was just kind of scared. <laughs> but it's it's important to to, I mean, obviously doing it with the podcast as I am and interviewing the the musicians I've interviewed for Yale, you get this idea of there's no one way, and you see all the different uh, processes that people go through yeah. to get what you thought would be well something totally different. Well, that's how you did it. Oh. You know, uh, like the, here's here's one uh, interviewing any of the free jazz pioneers. Uh, so, what did you guys talk about when you were uh, coming up with unit structures? Say, uh, well, we didn't talk about it. You know, yeah. so just just finding okay. out like what's happening on the ground. And you were also interviewing a lot of these guys near the beginnings of their coming out to to musical world, right? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, the way that Bass Player Magazine worked is, you know, there was a there were there was a category for people who were kind of up and comers, okay. and I interviewed some of those people sometimes, but more often than not, I was talking to fairly established people, uh, which was cool. Also, I mean, you know, I mean, and some of them were more well known than others. I mean, like you know, maybe maybe we all know who Michael Rhodes is, but you know, that's not necessarily a name that jumps off the tongue of every you know young player. Oh yeah, he's Cat. But I mean, like, you know, he's like one of the biggest guys in Nashville and not just the Nashville stuff. But, you know, what was interesting also was realizing that a lot of times these interviews, like this, the, 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 the battlefield wasn't necessarily prepared on their behalf for them to get the thing out that they wanted to say. It was just like, let's go talk to this person. And the publicist would arrange it, and then I would talk to them, and we would just like be sometimes random, sometimes cool, sometimes really focused. And you know, now we're getting back to uh, like when I was think, talking about the thing where I was back in Berkeley, which is like you have to tell people what you're up to. So <clears throat> when I was getting ready to publicize my first solo album, since the time I wrote for Bass Player Magazine, because the last time I put out a, a studio solo album before this, this most recent one was 2008, and that's when I was writing for them 11 years ago. I, I learned a lot about the, the kinds of submissions and press release and packages and messaging that worked to reinforce what it was they were trying to say about the art that they were trying to get people to listen to. 
you know, where is it publicity and where is it commerce and where is it art? The answer is kind of yes, you know. Uh, even Frank Zappa, even in the latest Frank's, in the latest documentary movie, you know, you, you would look at him as somebody who was this anti-commercial, quote unquote, as you could imagine. But in, in, in truth, he was actually very much into dollars and cents. And he said the whole point is to create something and then get people to buy it. That's the that's it. So, you know, I when I sat down to work on this on this double concept album, uh, which is called Scenes from the Flood, that came out last year. Uh, I put myself through an exercise and I advise anyone who, who asks me about putting together and like reaching out for publicity what to do. I wrote what I wanted to say about it with no limit. Just wrote pages and pages. You know, this is what the album's about, this is what the song's about. I was thinking about this and this is the story. Da, da, da. Well, why don't you <laughs> j jump in a little bit there? Because when you say concept album, I say yeah. So I'm yeah. really curious. Uh, what was the concept of the album for you? Well, I'll t I'll tell you. Let me. I'll, I'll finish the, the, the little bit okay, here. Sorry, and go ahead. It, it'll make it it'll make it easier to explain the concept because otherwise it'll end up going on forever. Uh, once I was done with that, or once you're done with that, then okay, you've done it in four pages. Congratulations. Now do it in one page. So now I have to condense it down to like three paragraphs. Now that means I got to talk about what it means where it was recorded, who plays on it, you know, what's the message of the album, you know, what's the vibe, what's the style, that's gotta be on one page. Great, I've done it on one page. Now give it to me in one paragraph. Now give it to me in one sentence. Now give it to me in 10 words. And that is a really, really difficult exercise because you just, it really makes you, forces you to boil down to just key words about, you know, you've got a few words that are gonna kind of ricochet throughout your entire press universe. And if you do it right, then the shortest bio and the longest bio all kind of, or, or all speak together in one voice about the thing that you're trying to say. So, scenes from the flood. What I, was, uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a, a grandiose double concept album, uh, you know, a throwback. Like, you know, like albums like The Wall, and Yes is, Pink Floyd The Wall, and Yes is Tales from Top Graphic Oceans tell a story about, in one word, disillusionment. About, and if you want to expand on it a little bit, I would say it's about human nature's desire to aspire and plan, and then reality events occur. Often, for everybody, they have this one thing that happens, a life event that occurs, it's like nothing's really the same after that. How does a human being react to that? How does the world react to the human being's reaction to that? Is life truly uh, intentional or is it capricious? And so I, it's a bit of a dark album and I tell the story that there's a, there's a protagonist in the album and, and he goes through a series of events and one by one, the illusions fall. It starts out in a very, very optimistic place. Uh, and uh, as the album goes on, there are more and more events, and eventually there's a song called The Storm, which is halfway through. And you can see that the, the, the album cover essentially evokes that, that thing that's, that, uh, that is coming. It starts off in this very kind of optimistic, very aspirational, uh, intentional place. Uh, and then life happens. And then what do you do about it? Do you go back to your original way of thinking? Or do you have to come up with something? Do you have to let go of that concept? That's what the album's about. 
and so I, 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 you know, I wanted to be able to tell the story with a lot of different tonalities and timbres of people, and uh, and so I ended up reaching out to the people that I was playing with at the time, which were, you know, I was doing a G3 tour. I realized that Joe Satriani would be great for like one of the opening tracks, a really optimistic major tonality rocker. I don't know if anybody does that instrumental world like Joe Satriani. He just has a great way of feeling and phrasing those kinds of major melodies. Uh, you know, not that he can't get dark and be sad and be blues, but he does do that thing really well at the art form. And so he was on that. And then, of course, there's this nine-minute progressive epic where the whole story comes to a climax on side four, if you're speaking in vinyl sides. And, you know, you've got 80 minutes of music preceding it. You've got one guitar solo that's going to have to essentially... Uh, exceed them all and you know who do you go to who can who has that kind of majesty well only john petrucci right so he did some one of those for me and then after that there's an ending ballad even after that who's you know got enough juice to be able to kind of carry the whole album home after this massive journey well got three is an amazing guitarist but that sort of thing is the, the incredible kind of six eight slow swing sad uh winsome ballad thing he just his tone on that and his feel on that is great Joe Travers is on a lot of the straight rockers uh, on drums. Gene Hoagland, incredible metal drummer, is on a couple of the really, really haul-ass metal tunes. That Gene's ridiculous. I know. Oh, Keneally is, is, Mike Keneally's on it. He plays, he plays metal guitar on the song that Hoagland's on, but also acoustic guitar on the ending ballad. Uh, just a little bit of extra range there. And, uh, you know, and then there was just, there's, there's a couple string players. There's, there's live strings. There's, you know, uh, I played all the bass. I played most of the keyboards. And then there's a lot of other guitarists in there too. A couple, you know, amazing young guitarists, Neely Brosh, amazing young uh, kind of rock instrumental fusion guitarist, uh, tackled one of the hardest parts on the album. Griff Peters and Rick Basalm, who were from the, uh, Mike Neely's band, uh, and uh, they had they had really really cool parts. Jamie Kime from the original Zappa plays Zappa band has a really key solo. Uh, I mean, I can go on and on. Ray Hearn from Haken is the drummer for a couple songs, so we're getting deep into the kind of prog thing. It felt like I really, after 10 years, I really wanted to say something big, you know, and, and make a statement that would honor as an homage as much as anything else to the big records that we loved and grown up with, the double concept albums. Uh, and because, you know, Thick as a Brick is a great, is almost is a perfect concept album, right? You know, the, the themes that interweave throughout, the way the movements keep going, but it's just a single album. So I really wanted to emulate a double concept album like The Wall, there are a lot of parallels. That's what, I could talk for two hours about that. Uh, but also like Tales from Topographic Oceans, just the gigantic scope of the thing. I'm curious, you've mentioned Tales, for Topograph Tales from Topographic Oceans several times. And I have to say, it's a huge one for me as well as a body of work. Now, it's also been maligned to a certain extent. I don't know why, because I don't agree with what I hear. But why don't you tell me what you think is so great about it and how it could inspire you to do a double concept workout? Well, this is really, really, I'm so glad you asked this. You know, uh, I think that yes is, most of yes's best writing uh, is on fragile, close to the edge, yes album relay. I don't think that Tales from Topographic Oceans has their best writing. But the thing that they were going for was so big. And they almost, so this is the thing. I do, I actually consider the album a failure. Uh, and 
I, I say that as a fan of the band and as a fan of the album. <clears throat> There's a lot of great themes in there. The first two songs are essentially mirrors of each other. They're, they're both, they're kind of like both, they're like close to the edge again and then close to the edge again. It's a 20 minute song with the movements that, you know, go high and then low and then high and then it rewinds and, you know, wraps back around and then, and then it ends. <clears throat> and they're cool, but they're, and especially because the first one has a couple of themes that come back later in the, in the, fourth, in the fourth one. Yeah, that weird guitar melody to see how it does. The and Kodan. Kinds of God. Right, exactly. Now, the, the side three and four are much more interesting to me. The Ancient Ritual. Those are super adventurous compositions. Well, the slide, you know, the steel guitar forever. What a commitment to that idea. Okay. And not only that, but the rhythmic aspect of the, you know, of, of the ancient that, and then, and then the way the melody floats over it and everything it was the first time they ever really tried something like that. Uh, and then of course the second half of the song is all acoustic and then finally ritual. And you know, they almost did it. Like the, I feel like the first half of ritual honors the rest of the album and kind of tying up a double concept album about as well as anyone could have written it. And up until the point where this, where the, uh, the, where the song suddenly stops and then breaks down to that drum percussion solo thing, then it's, it's just like, you know, it didn't need that. It was, it was that the, 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 the bass solo section in the five, dun, 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 and then the, you know, do la -da -da -da, la -da 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 -da. and then the guitar solo that follows out with that crazy series of oh, changes. I love that guitar solo. Yeah, that's goosebumps, man. That stuff's right. all great. And then it goes into that drum thing, and I know that they were trying to tell a story in four parts with the different instruments and all the rest of that stuff, but then it comes back, and it does the original theme again, and then they try to kind of wrap it up in this ending series of kind of slow winding chords with a, with a one final guitar solo, and then there's this climactic chord that just kind of dissolves into this minor thing. That minor, yeah. And then it's over. I remember the first time I heard it, I was just like, what was that? And and that's only been reinforcing me over time. So I don't want to spend too long on this, but I already have. And I will say that in, in a mo on Scenes from the Flood, this is like super arrogant to say, but I really did intentionalize this. This is minute 85 of an 88-minute album the end of the second to last track, which is the climactic ballad, because the last song is in that block. The last minute and a half of that I, is my attempt to right the wrong that I feel like the very end of Topographic Oceans didn't really get. Is well, it, it's it, so hard to end on a big thing. I mean, it, you know, they made a choice, and we all make that choice when we do the expanded idea. You know, make that ending mean something. Make that ending land. It's not so easy. They subverted it. They well, they tried to. That's they the tried thing. to subvert. That, I think they tried yeah. to subvert it, and they didn't quite. It didn't quite work. They're like, they're like I get it. Like the first two sides are essentially close to the edge again. Like I said, there's the big climactic major ending after 20 minutes. Okay, so then they were like, no, we're not going to do that this time. So something. what was your solution? My solution was just I. I hope is a more cohesive series of harmonic climactic chords and then a more satisfying subversion of the format because my album does overtly attempt to subvert the ending of a double concept album format it doesn't end the way that you think it's going to and uh 
And that's the thing that I liked about topographic oceans is that I got that they were trying to do that. But I mean, you know, we all know, we've all read the stories about how difficult it was when they were making that album. They weren't really operating as a cohesive unit and it kind of shows. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to answer to anybody but me. So this, that was the, it was the best I could do to kind of like give it the sense of grandeur that the end of the wall had, you know, with the whole thing leading up to that final explosion and also the Tales from Topographic Oceans thing where it just doesn't end harmonically the way that you think it will. And, uh, and what are the implications of that, the story of the album? Where does it leave you as a listener until So there. There's my, there's my big, long, overstuffed take on Tales from Topographic Oceans. But they got it right on Relayer. They sure did, man. And, and, and what an adventurous album. Gates Delirium is one of my favorite compositions ever. Ever. I hope so. I mean, just the structure of it. I love how they were able to create a 20-minute composition without using the close-to-the-edge formula. You know, they, they really did kind of reinvent it. They, they did the, with the three-movement thing, with, the, with the, the song as the, the kind of first third, and then this massive, massive odyssey section, the battle, the battle scene uh, in the second, half, uh, second third, and then soon, which is really its own song in a lot of ways, the third song, except for the very end of Soon, which ties back to the first couple of things, and then the way that it ends is just absolutely gorgeous. That is really something. That's that's a, a, a landmark piece of work. And Sound Chaser is just like nothing's ever been written like that. I performed that song with a band at Berkeley just to get the vocals right on that, and in, in the you know uh, uh, in the verses, it's just like fuck. It's really hard. Yeah. Uh, the vocal arranging. Just for a second, we should say. Vocal arranging, if you really are interested in vocal arranging success stories in prog rock, you look at the Genesis, uh, the, the Yes book, and you will see that, you know, Squire is the vocal arranger on, I'd say, nine-tenths of that stuff. Yeah. That's serious. It is really great when you hear the way the, har the inner harmonies are shifting up and down. Well, uh, he's the bottom and the top of everything. Yeah. So he's very concerned about contours. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I remember writing this out in traditional harmony, the uh, faster moments, ways of change of the, the sound, all that stuff. Move to counterbalance that you know. Uh, I'm not going to sing it, but I mean, like, uh, the, the, if you listen to the high part, listen to the low part. Try and listen to the middle part. The middle part is going up and down half steps and whole steps to try and carry the way that the majors and minors are, and it is just a bitch. I know. I know. And then To Be Over is a, is a really, really beautiful song. Yes, and that should be, I think, considered also a masterpiece by them. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's, a, it's an absolutely gorgeous song. Uh, I would have loved to have heard it maybe recorded and engineered slightly differently. It's a little kind of thin and bright, but it is what it is, and, it, and it's a great album. And I, I do consider that album a success, whereas Topographic Oceans is kind of a magnificent failure. Have you heard the live recordings of topographic and relayer material? Because they really knock it out of the park. I have heard live relayers. Uh, I have not heard too much live topographic oceans. Oh yeah, well I've heard, I mean, I've heard the ritual, uh, version of ritual on Yes shows. Well, here's the thing, and I think you'll get a kick out of this. When Jean-Luc Ponty was touring with John Anderson a few years back, I got the chance to hang out with Anderson. And this is what I said to him. John, in 1974, you guys went out 
and you did the full Close to the Edge album, took an intermission, and did the four movements from Tales from Topographic Oceans, left the stage, came back, played Roundabout, Good Night. I said, are you fucking kidding me? He goes, oh, well, nobody told us we couldn't do it. That's it's an incredible commitment to long form of stuff. And the thing, but you know this though, and this is the thing that, that I wish more musicians could learn and know and feel. There are certain things that happen to a piece of music when you play them on a tour. And it's not even necessarily about, oh, we're on tour. It's just that you played it in 20, 30, 40, 50 different venues in like rapid succession. It's bulletproof. There, yeah, there are things that you learn what works and what doesn't work and there are little evolutions and, and all the rest of that stuff. And it's amazing what can become normalized and regular when you commit your life essentially to a couple months to just doing nothing but putting on this show. And yeah, if you're starting from scratch and you have to learn the entire Close to the Edge album, the entire Top Graphic Ocean album, the Roundabout, and then you got to go out there and play in two weeks, you're fucked. But if you've had a lifetime of playing with some of the same guys and just playing material over and over and over and over again, you know, a lot of good things come from that. And, you know, it's funny with the aristocrats, that's pretty technically and, and also form wise demanding stuff. And when I haven't played it in a while and I go back and I listen to a, a live recording or something like that, I go, Oh my God, that, how do I do that? Yeah. And, but once you get over the hill on that stuff once, it's funny how quickly it does snap back when you go back and go, okay, I got to relearn this thing. And then suddenly you're, you know, after the first or second time your hands go, oh, right. And all the muscle memory and the mental memory kicks in and just happens. And that doesn't really happen unless you get a chance to tour. That's right. Because it's the 10th time or it's the 12th time. It's the 10th time. <laughs> it is 10 times. I agree with that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you see yes going out with Alan White to play the close to the edge material for the first time live. And that's where arranging is taking place on stage. So I would recommend that to you also. There's show, four shows from 72. It's a box yeah. set. Fucking Squire. Sometimes he's direct. So you hear like all these little details of what he's doing and he never misses anything. And there's, there's a time where he bails on a vocal because he's not sure he, you can tell he forgot what the next lyric was going to be and he bails on it rather than say it wrong i mean there's interesting stuff like that yeah you know yeah. i could go on but but is your lot is your um your concept album going to be performed live well that was part of the plan i mean i you know covid fucked up so much shit right you know part of my branch but uh i, I had a year and a half of touring lined up i was this was going back to the half of second half of last year it started in the summer of 2019 it's going to be a full aristocrat cycle for our latest album, You Know What. Uh, and uh, we did all North America. We did both have, we did both legs of Europe. The second leg ended on March 6th. I mean, like, and we, I was in Italy from February 12 to 23. I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. It was happening all around us. It was crazy. So what did you notice? Oh, everybody was talking about it already when we were there. Like, you know, when we arrived in 13 to 14, first couple shows were in the north and then we went down south uh and the plan was to come back up north to torino and montepaluna which is way north to finish the run and so when we went down south we were already hearing in the north that cases were growing and what is going on and da, 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 da. 
And then when we started working our way back up north, we were in, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but no. we're gonna, we were going to, we were going to back up north and there were, there were two shows left and those two shows were the dates, the 23rd and the 24th. They were the first cancellations of the entire West, like shutdowns in the entire Western world. It was Northern Italy on February 23, pretty sure. And we just got the hell out of there. Went to Austria, Russia, Ireland, UK and finished the run. And so that was it. But the aristocrats had South America and Asia for the rest of the year. That got blown out. And then I was supposed to start Joe Satriani Europe for, for his tour for the shape-shifting album. That was supposed to start in April in Europe. That got wiped out. He had a South America thing for the summer. That got wiped out. He had a North America thing that's supposed to be happening right now. That got wiped out. So everything got pushed back into 2021. And my original plan was to finish 2020 with all both of those world tours kind of, you know, in the books, which would have been a very good year and a half for me because you know how it is when you're touring. It's cyclical. You can't take too many touring acts because you got to be able to commit to large chunks of time. So I figured Aristocrats and Joe Satriani was a, was a good way to go. Uh, and then it all got wiped off the calendar all at once. Uh, so when the calendar resumes, I'm going to jump back on with Joe and then finish that Aristocrats and probably add stuff on the back end of it. We, don't, we haven't planned it yet, but we will. Uh, and so any opportunity that I would have had to do my own solo tour, put that together, has now been pushed way off. You know, I mean, we're talking... 2023 probably you know and 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 there were always going to be challenges about doing it because i want to do it like i just don't want to walk on stage with a bunch of musicians and just play this music first of all you couldn't do it with less than six musicians anyway and that's with tracks some of these arrangements are just huge i also wanted to feel like a like a concept album show like the wall and you know i'm i don't have roger waters bank account uh, but I would like to put on a show that has a video accompaniment and a real show. Yeah. So that's going to take some planning. And I had a list of things that I was all going to work on while I was on the road in 2020 with these other acts. And of course, it all got completely blown out. So, you know, now we're, we're, we're ending where we started, which is uh, man plans and God laughs, right? I mean, you know, the you know, album is what happened to the album's live plans. Indeed. Uh, and, and, but our audience should know that you did some really slick videos for, for some of the songs on this album. Tell me about that. Oh, well, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, there's, well, the, there, there are three, three videos. The first one is very minimalist, actually, for the song The Storm, which is the embodiment of, you know, the, the, the life event that after which things will never be the same. And, uh, and, and it's just, you can look it on YouTube, it's just a very, very slow forming graphic image of a uh, of a kind of a, a digital storm cloud and some things happen to it. It's, uh, I think it's cool, uh, but it's definitely minimalist. Then there's a video for Volunteer State, which is that very up song that kind of starts the whole journey. And uh, it's a live action video, uh, which was shot, uh, you know, in, in, in a bunch of locations in California. And it's, a, it's kind of an old school video. It's like a, a video that you might have seen on MTV, like in the 80s or 90s or something like that. Uh, and then there's a, there was, for these two other songs, these more kind of shorter, faster, quicker paced songs called A Quickening and Steiner and Ellipses, which is the story kind of accelerating and, and a malevolent force showing up. Uh, I wanted to have a video that was kind of paced at the speed of now. You know, like everything, you see these, you know, TikTok videos and modern videos, and there's so many cuts and everything's happening so fast. You know, we're, we're you know, I'm, I'm 49 years old, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. 
but video definitely moves faster than the way that I'm used to thinking of it. And so I wanted to have something that moved that fast also was a satire and kind of a, uh, a commentary on our completely digital and digitized universe that we're in because of COVID, but not just because of COVID. With, we're always on social media where artists were creating content and people are commenting on it and then we're reading the comments and reacting and it turns into this big meta thing. So that, that video, basically I dressed up as four different characters who are all content creators. They, they put their content online. A bunch of random commenters, comments show up on the screen basically cutting on them. And then the characters go back to their own social media accounts and read the negative comments that were left for them. And, and, and then, of course, we're experiencing this in the real world on social media, commenting on these commenters, commenting on these people. It just starts to turn into this very being John Malkovich thing. And then finally, there's a little bit of a plot twist in the end. And someone kind of tries to break out of the whole thing. Uh, so that video was, uh, was edited by Joe Satriani's son, Zizi who's actually a very, very talented filmographer and editor, and he's also under the age of 30. And so he looks at video, having grown up in, on a much faster paced world than Gen X or me. And I wanted someone who could bring the speed and feel of that kind of thing into the video, and I think he did a really, really great job. So those are all on my YouTube page. The, those you should see, folks, because uh, the one that Brian's describing with the social media thing, moves so incredibly beautifully against the music and there's just it's just a very innovative piece and and i was really knocked out by it i know you will be too it's a lot of work uh we, we shot we shot for months weekends it's like it's I'll t i gotta tell you i don't know how like the hollywood film people do it i mean like you know the amount of work that goes into just creating something that looks good with just a few seconds is mind-numbing and you know thinking about the way that they're doing this on a massive scale i don't care you know cgi or not you still got to have real people in there doing it and you still got to create these worlds and it takes a lot of work it made me i was excited to do it because i came up with something that i wanted to present in this era as a video not just a four squares pretty bunch you know live shot video not that there's anything wrong with that because i think that people need music but that wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, so I, I felt good about, about presenting that and I felt good about working on it. But when I was done, I was just like, oh my God, I am so glad, to, so happy to be back to just working on audio. He but, says on, on the Zoom call. Uh, no, <laughs> listen, I, I believe in the visual and I, you know, obviously, but I, I you know, I, I care what the visuals are for the sounds that I'm listening to. We, you know, we stared at those gatefold album covers for, for, you know, hours and hours at a time for a reason. Yeah. And, you know, you're bringing that back. I love that you did purple vinyl. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny because you started this whole thing by saying that, you know, it was all very forward looking, but the truth is, is that this particular work is not really forward looking. It's really a throwback. Uh, but you know, for people who aren't familiar with the format, the concept, that's a whole different thing. And I know that the attention spans of younger listeners are not what it used to be, but I am hopeful, even though people's listening habits have changed, we see a lot of young people at aristocrat shows and they're hungry for good stuff. So in the end, you gotta be who you are. I think that when you're an artist, it doesn't work to try and do it any other way. So, you know, even if a double album is what you're into and everybody's putting out singles and streaming on Spotify, whatever, nothing you can do about that you just 
you just have to make the work and the art that you believe in that you're infused with because you listen to you know you are what you eat you listen to this stuff when you grew up the yeah. double folds the progressive stuff and all the rest of that stuff it, you know if you listen to that stuff and then suddenly try and be Mumford and Sons, you know, it's going to be weird. Now, I tell people all the time, I tell my son, look, this is my damage. You know, it's like I was 13 going to see Emerson, Lake and Palmer at Madison Square Garden with a full orchestra. So I'm fucked. You know, it's, you know, once you live that and it's so vivid to this moment, Brian, I can still picture, you know, seeing yes for going, going for the, the one and, you're so lucky. Nights. I was, I mean, so you, when, was that the first tour that you saw going for the one? Yeah, I missed Relayer and the solo. Oh, well, tour. you know, the first one I saw was Big Generator. Which was a great tour, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I liked it, but of course I wanted to hear more of the mid-70s stuff, and they didn't do it, so. You know, I'll tell you all about it sometime, because those <laughs> were, you know, very vivid memories, uh, and they were a chamber ensemble, as were a lot of those groups. You know, there's a sense of chamber in Mahavishnu. There's a, you know, there's a sense yeah. of chamber in, you know, Return to Forever. There's a sense of a chamber thing in Gentle Giant. And, and so, you know, you look at what were we learning when we were listening to those cats? Well, one thing we were learning is how to play as a band. Like, you know, you talk about, oh, the guitar solos, other, you know, yeah, I get that. But like, we were learning mechanics. And I say this to the, all those guys, like, we were listening to your music on the radio and learn, and we were doing ear training, you know? Yeah. And not only that, but you know, the thing about, uh, chamber influenced, classically influenced progressive rock, like, yes, is that your part is just one of an interlocking piece. If you, if you start fucking with it or you don't pay attention to it, you know, the whole composition can fall apart very quickly. So, you know, that kind of focus and presence is a big part of what makes it all work. Man, uh, Brian, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I uh, Thanks for having me. Man, I, I'm, I'm just such an admirer of your work. I, I have been since, you know, we first showed up together. I don't know if you remember, but we shared the stage in May of 2001 at the bottom line on the dancing tour where Mahavishnu Project doubled with Beer for oh, Dolphins. I do remember that. I, I remember it very, very well. Yeah. You're killing on that stuff. I mean, like, just, uh, just uh, you know, there's a lot going on and all that. And there's, so, there's so many great players uh, uh, in our world. Uh, and I hope that when live music resumes, that people will appreciate that. Uh, that, you know, there's just so much good stuff to see out there. Uh, don't waste an opportunity to go see it once it comes back. You know, I never did. And, and that's why I feel okay. Like I went to everything. I saw, uh, you know, Frank premiere, New York premiere of, of Perfect Stranger at Juilliard and Frank was there. And that's when I met Frank and, and talked to him about Ferez. And I've told that story on the podcast, so I won't tell it again. But, you know, just being able to, 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 and have the, the air moving in your face from the vibration of the stage. There's no way to replace that. And then also the, the, the moment of connecting with an audience. Yeah, the shared experience. I mean, you know, I, it's great that some bands have figured out the Twitch thing. You know, they're performing live and, and it's a thing, but it's not the thing. Everybody knows that. But, we're, you know, we're, 
it is what it is. You know, we just got to tough it out for another few months, I think, and then we're all, and I think it's going to get a lot better. So, you know, we've, we've been through worse. Brian Beller, you're the best, man. I, I really Thank appreciate you. you. Thanks. And, uh, Thanks for having me. You know, I, I, I have, I want to tell a little tale about you, which is that when uh, our dear, dear friend and, and uh, amazing artist, bassist Doug Lund was in his final days, Keneally, Bendy and Lund, our trio with Mike Keneally, played at Alva's in Pedro, right? And Brian Beller was there. And I will never forget Brian Beller freaking out over Doug Lund and going up to Doug and, and giving him mad respect. And uh, it really touched me and I still think of it. There was an amazing composition that he wrote. Uh, it was, it was, right? There was, there was one song in particular that I completely lost my shit over. And uh, I think that was- that, Was that yours? The one for my dad? Yes, yes. Holy God, that was amazing. That's right, I forgot about that. By the way, don't cut it off yet. I wanna show you something. This is Doug's credit. Oh, wow. This now. Uh, I talked to, wow, what, a, what an image this is. Uh, I talked to, uh, well, actually, what happened was that uh, uh, Vita, yeah. uh, Doug's widow, uh, reached out to me uh, I, because she didn't have my Keneally's information. And, and she said, uh, you know, I've got these two bases here, and, they sh and they're just sitting here, and they shouldn't be just sitting here. Uh, and, you know, would you talk to Mike and maybe you guys can like, figure out what to do with them and because they should be played. And so I called Mike and I was like, you're not going to play this, but you know, you just called me and she's got, you know, the, the, the two Zons, the, the, the Fredic five and the fretless five, the one that he played on everything. Uh, everything. She wants, she, 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 she wants us to do something with them. So I uh, talked to her and, uh, and her daughter and went over to the house in Santa Monica and and picked them up. And Mike and I, we talked about it and we agreed that that he should have the fretless because it's on some of that, it's all that classic stuff that he has. And uh, you don't really want to hear me play fretless anyway. <laughs> and uh, and then I and then I would take the fretted and uh, and it's just it's actually a great instrument. It's so cool. I've used it on a couple recordings already. It's got that kind of dark woolly tone, you know, that 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 Doug had. Of course my hands are not his hands. It's a completely different thing. But uh, but yeah, so I have this. So talking about Doug, I mean, part of Doug lives here. That means so much to me. That's so wonderful. He he was such a, an a incredible collaborator and beautiful player. If if you want to hear Doug Lund with me and Mike Keneally on Scambot 2, there are three tracks of that trio. Yeah. Where Doug yeah. multi-tracked bass parts, both doubling things on... Uh, fretless and fretted. I mean, it was just, there's massive bass on those tracks. Yeah, just absolutely amazing work. And, you know, I mean, I remember being, you know, I got to go in just a second, but I remember being in a, uh, the earliest times of Keneally listening to Doug's work on Boil That Dust, like listening to A Glow and listening to uh, Blameless and, you know, just that beautiful, you know, fluid, smooth, dark tone that he got on. It was just amazing so so yeah we good, did blameless blameless we did with the trio with mike yeah i think i remember that yeah and just being able to hang with doug on that 
Um, well, I, you know, I, it's so it's so good to connect the two of you guys and to see that that connection is going on. That's yeah. just great. And I know uh, the the Keneally track that I'm on for his next thing, he's putting the fretless Doug bass on on the track. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the typical Keneally is a great thing to end on. When I when I when I brought the bass to him, uh, he was in a studio recording, and I just handed it to him. It was in a studio somewhere in North San Diego County. And I just handed it to him. And he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start using this right now." And like, he, he was making music with it like within 15 minutes of having it, you know. Well, he played it on the Alva show. Doug, when Doug played drums, Mike played bass, oh, Mike played oh, piano. Oh, 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 oh! I see what you're saying. So, but so he had seen that, you know, he had felt that bass a few times before. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's so yeah. great. Well, this is great. I'm glad this is this is this is a great way to this is a great way to, to kind of to kind of wrap it up here. Uh, and I That's really appreciate this instrument. Doug is an amazing player, and, uh, and I'm sure you know. I'm sure he's in that. from somewhere up in those purple virtual clouds. <laughs> he's in the vibration now. Yeah, yeah. Well, folks, Man. thank you to Brian Beller. It's it's been such a pleasure, and uh, we've got a lot more stuff coming in 2021. This will be our last one. We're going to take Christmas and New Year's off. But we will see you in 2021. Please like and subscribe to us, and we'll keep doing these. And I can say that we are looking to have a member of Gentle Giant for our premiere episode in January. So looking forward to that. And thank you, Brian Beller. And everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, everyone out there. Thanks, Hope brother. See you soon.